Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, at time of recording and probably time of listening, the UN Climate Summit, COP27, is still underway in Egypt. Uh, This is arguably the most crucial time for climate and energy policy, so you're probably wondering what aspect of the talks this episode will delve into. But given that we won't know the full extent of what will or won't be agreed in Sharm el-Sheikh for a while yet. Over at Foresight, we decided to park the discussion about COP for a future episode when we can really get into the nitty gritty of what it all means. So look out for that in the coming weeks. Instead, today we're going to be discussing an issue that is still linked to COP, but is rather more tangible. It's the European Union's recent agreement on a number of energy and climate rules, which when all added up, mean that the bloc of 27 countries will be able to de facto increase its 2030 emissions reduction goal from 55% to 57%. 2% is a big deal in this world, remember. Now, to go a little more into detail about how the EU has managed this, I'm going to be joined this week by the podcast Behind the Scenes Mastermind and fellow climate journalist Anna Gumbau. Now, before we get into it, here's this week's policy dispatch quiz, which I know you all enjoy by this point. Uh, Forests are a massive part of climate policies, as we'll see later in the episode. They soak up a lot of CO2, so looking after them is a big deal. 66% of Finland is covered by them, making it the most forested country in Europe, while Sweden is second with 63%. But which country ranks third with 61%? Is it Estonia, Slovenia, or Austria? Answer at the end of the show. So the EU has just finalised agreements on its effort sharing regulation, its land use, land use change and forestry regulation, and is in the process of tying up a deal on new emissions trading system rules. All three form the foundation of the bloc's climate policies. So what do these developments mean for the bigger picture? Anna Gumbau is here to dig into these issues with me this week. Hi, Anna. Hi, Sam. Great to be here. Awesome. I think it's really interesting to be able to have this uh, this conversation today. Um, there seems to be a lot going on with COP27, but uh, it's clear that the negotiations on the EU are still ongoing, that there's a lot on the policy front still to be uh, to be looking at. So I think it's very good to be able to take a step back and to to reflect on those. Brilliant. Yeah, I think you're definitely right, especially with COP, that everyone's looking at this thing. It's a lot more politics than policies. And we're doing the policy dispatch after all. So it's important that we um, we stick to what we're good at as well, I think. Indeed, exactly. And I think there's um, so many things to discuss. I mean, we've been seeing two of the uh, most important uh, pieces of climate legislation being uh, being agreed and in the past few days and a few others that uh, are advancing in the uh, in the negotiations there's uh, just about a month and a half to go until the end of the year uh 
the Czech presidency is nearing its uh, its uh, end as well in just a month and a half. So we are still going to be seeing a lot of uh, a lot of that. And uh, I think for for starters, something that I find uh, quite impressive is. Uh, the degree to which the Czech presidency has managed to achieve, you know, quite ahead of time, some agreements in some key regulations. I mean, today we are focusing on effort sharing, on land use, land use change, change and forestry. But we also saw the um, the um, agreement on uh, the CO2 standards for cars and vans, which sets the end of the internal combustion engine. So pretty impressive, don't you think? Definitely. I mean, especially when the Czechs took over and a lot of people were kind of asking, you know, what is the Czech Republic going to do? Are they going to be more, um, you know, less progressive than other countries when they take over on climate files and things? But like you say, they've they've managed to wrap up so much and, you know, there's not going to be so much left for the Swedes to do in January when they take over. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and particularly in the, in the challenging context that we are facing, right, that we see the energy price crisis ongoing, Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, I think for many of us had big concerns that the uh, that the pieces of legislation that were meant to be negotiated um, for the Fit for 55, many of them, in fact, should be entering into force by beginning of 2023, wouldn't be able to make it on time. So, uh, so yeah, I think that uh, that says something very positive, I believe, from from this presidency. No, we've definitely gone from, you know, is the Green Deal going to survive this to, you know, it's now going to be able to be implemented on time and actually start contributing to climate goals. Well, if we could sort of start with one of these ones you've already mentioned then, the effort sharing regulation, the ESR, uh, we can really put our journalistic flair to use at the moment and actually explain to people uh, what this piece of legislation is. Not many people have heard of it. Um, on the 8th of November, uh, the EU managed to broker a deal on this. So the European Commission, the Parliament and the Council all agreed on a final text. It all has to be voted on at various points to be confirmed, but all the details are there now. Um, maybe we could start off, what actually is this legislation, Anna? Mm-hmm. Indeed. So the effort sharing regulation, um, put it perhaps in very simple terms, is one of the three perhaps pillars of the EU's climate mitigation policy. So on the one hand, we have the EU emissions trading system, which covers uh, the power sector, uh, intra-EU or intra-European economic area, uh, aviation emissions and energy intensive industries. Uh, then we have uh, the land use, land use change and forestry, which we are also going to be discussing later on. And then we have the effort sharing regulation. This regulation covers all the emissions from buildings, road transport, agriculture and waste. This is a total of around 60% of the EU's um, total um, annual emissions. So that's a pretty big deal to um to be uh, to be negotiating and to 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 tighten as well. Um, now the previous legislation set a thirty uh, percent emissions reduction target. So the baseline is two thousand and five, and the idea was to cut emissions by around thirty percent uh, by twenty thirty. Now the updated piece of legislation cuts emissions by forty percent by twenty thirty, or is aimed. Uh, to cut uh, emissions by 40% by 2030. And uh, perhaps one of the uh, features of this legislation is that it sets uh, national targets. So those with a larger GDP per capita do more, and those who are the poorest member states will have a lower share of the effort. Um, In the previous um, 
in the previous effort sharing regulation, in the previous uh, uh, piece of uh, piece of law, we used to see how countries like Luxembourg or Sweden had to reduce their emissions in these uh, sectors by 40%, whereas Bulgaria, for instance, had enough, if you want to call it like that, with not increasing its emissions compared with uh, 2005 levels. So it really... This is really what it means with effort sharing, because uh, each mm-hmm. one of the member states has a share of the burden in uh, into this target, depending on uh, essentially, yeah, how uh, wealthy uh, they uh, they are. And uh, and yeah, in terms of that, we see how, for instance. Um, now some of these the, the richer member states would have to do more, and some of them reduce emissions of this sector by fifty percent. Whereas now, for instance, the um, uh, EU with the lowest target, if you want to call it like that, uh, Bulgaria is going to be uh, somewhere around uh, 10%. Uh, of um, of that, that they need to reduce emissions by 2030. So, still, let's say the the distribution key of uh, the efforts that need to be made remains the same. But that also encourages the perhaps the member states with lower incomes now to to do more and to really accelerate uh, in uh, their emissions reductions in these sectors, which are traditionally. Uh, pretty difficult to implement because we know uh, how it works. Many of these sectors affect consumers uh, directly. So uh, these are always politically sensitive um, issues to to be discussing. I mean, like, yeah, like you say, it's such a politically sensitive file, 60% of emissions. It really depends on countries agreeing to, like it says, uh, share burdens. Um, like we said at the top of the show, it's quite uh, impressive in a way that they've all agreed to do this, especially given the current situation with um, inflation, Ukraine, even the um, leftovers from the pandemic. Um, the fact that they've managed to do a deal on this, regardless of um, all the loopholes and exemptions and maybe lack of ambition that maybe we can get into as well. Um, it's impressive that this is already re- ready to go um, next year even. Mm-hmm. And we can see also, you know, so many connections with other of of the key EU pieces of legislation. I mean, if we look into buildings, um, Mm -hmm. we are potentially going to be seeing a new uh, emissions trading system for both buildings and road transport uh, coming into place. Repower EU also puts so much emphasis on... a renovation of buildings and energy efficiency uh, standards. Of course, if we look once again at road transport, we see the CO2 standards for cars and and vans, everything related into agriculture, into uh, the farm-to-fork strategy. So mm-hmm. this this piece of legislation perhaps always comes a little bit like under, uh, not so much under the radar and not so many people like follow that, but uh, it brings so many of the, the different elements of the puzzle, the different elements of the jigsaw of the European Green Deal uh, coming uh, coming together. So that seems to be a, a, a significant step on on ambition and and efforts to to be decarbonized in these sectors once again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you say, I mean, um, the fact that it is politically sensitive, it's it's almost good that um, it isn't as followed as other things like the emissions trading scheme or renewable energy targets because. Um, perhaps negotiators can, um, should we say, get away with a little bit more without being under constant scrutiny. Um, like in terms of exemptions and loopholes and reaction to this deal, um, I think we've been seeing quite a bit of this legislation allows member states to um, delay their emissions reductions to a certain extent because they can do a little bit of creative accounting before 
the end of the decade. Um, have you seen any kind of takes and, and reactions to this already that agree with that, or, or has it been largely positive or negative, would you say? Well, I mean, something that is very interesting is that if we look at the previous legislation and if we look also on how the effort sharing regulation has been worked for the past decade, something that it's an interesting feature of the entire regulation is the fact that each member states have a, if you want to call it like that, a total maximum of, of, of emissions that they can emit is what they call the AEAs or, or annual, um, annual emission allocations. <laughs> And uh, they can uh, trade these emissions. They can uh, also bank these emissions to the following years. They can also uh, front load emissions from the following year to the past uh, past year. And in most of the cases, this uh, this architecture of the effort sharing regulation stays uh, stays the same. There are still several flexibilities that EU member states can um, can use to achieve these uh, objectives. Now. This uh, this have been tightened, so there's a very specific. There's a lower percentage of emissions of, of emission allocations that member states can either uh, trade or or bank. So in this sense, has become stricter. But for instance, um, if we looked at uh, a previous Commission data, what is very interesting is that at the end of the day, um, throughout most of the um, of the past decade. Uh, in fact, most member states had a very high cumulative surplus of annual emission allocations. In practice, it was only uh, Malta and I think Bulgaria that needed to trade um, annual emission allocations and, and got perhaps a deficit of them at some point in the past, uh, past few years, which in practice, I believe this means that... Um, that the previous objectives were by far, at least if we look at the objectives before 2020, perhaps not nowhere as strict as they should be. So the question now is going to be whether the current objectives, uh, the new objectives that have been agreed essentially, will be able to really um, tighten the, the, um, the, the scheme as it currently stands and, and really make sure that... Um, that EU member states really make more efforts to reduce emissions in these sectors, which again, they have to, if we take into account and if we look at the other pieces of legislation and the many uh, commitments that have been uh, made across across the sectors involved. No, that's super interesting that there was, like you say, a bit more built-in um, scope for ambition. You know, like you say, countries were um, easily meeting the the targets that maybe they were set before and, and now they do have this extra burden to share, uh, but that they are capable of doing it, essentially, I think. Um, like in the previous episode on uh, carbon removals, it all comes back to um, accounting and mathematics, I think, um, that uh, that's what make the climate world go round. Um, I think that's a good bit on on effort sharing regulation. If there's anything else you think um, our listeners would, uh, would appreciate hearing about, or we can move on to the, the LULUCF, one of my favorite acronyms. Let's move indeed to one of my favorite acronyms as well. Let's go for it. Yes. So on 11th of November, I think, mm -hmm. uh, late in the evening, as these things normally happen, uh, another team of EU negotiators managed to uh, broker this land use, land use change and forestries regulation, LULUCF. 
Um, this is the one that basically means that the EU can go for 57% emission reductions instead of 55%, if I have interpreted this quite complex uh, regulation correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we can, if we take a step back into the, uh, the debate around the targets, um, I don't know if you remember when, uh, when mm-hmm. the European climate law was, uh, was agreed, which uh, feels like forever, but it was really less than two years ago, if, uh, if you think about it. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, um, so everyone agreed about the climate neutrality objective by 2050, but was, what was by far the most controversial issue was the emissions reduction target that we would be uh, aiming, uh, that we should be aiming for by 2030, right? So perhaps the shorter term uh, objectives. Um, at first, the European Parliament rapporteur uh, decided or put forward the 65% uh, target, which was significantly above the 50 to 55% uh, emissions reduction target that the Commission was looking to. In the end, they said at least a 55% net target. So the rapporteur, uh, Jute Guteland, at the time proposed a 65% target. Then the Parliament eventually agreed to a 60% uh, emissions reduction target. But since the European Council agreed on a 55% goal, that's the goal that um, underpinned the, the rest of the legislation, and that's how Fit for 55 was born. Um, now, once the climate law was agreed, um, one of the perhaps the most interesting features, and that's also something that we discussed in our previous episode with uh, with Mark Preston on on carbon removals, was that the fact that the law also wanted to strengthen the EU's uh, carbon sinks. So um, they um, they put forward an, an an objective or an amendment that would see the uh, uh, would see more importance on on give more importance on natural carbon sinks. It was something between. 225 uh, million tons of uh, of net removals from from LULUCF that should contribute to the target, and this already was a way to sell it as a, um, a way that in fact the EU target was bigger or like more ambitious than 55 percent. Now we are coming back to the same um, same uh, debate once again because. What LULICF agreed was to increase the um, the amount of um, of net uh, CO two removals uh, to three hundred and ten megatons. So that's um, that's eighty five million tons more, uh, which means that probably if we do the the accounting, this would mean perhaps a fifty seven percent emissions reduction target. And that's something that Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president at the Commission, insisted upon. Uh, before traveling to Egypt for COP27, that this could be the EU's new objective uh, as part of its nationally determined contribution. Though I have to admit that I'm still quite lost with all the accounting here. Oh, you're not the only one. Don't worry. It's uh, the big numbers and small numbers, 310 million, but then that translates to 2%. It's, uh, I don't know, it's like adding an extra Finland into the mix or something like that. But um the idea that this was a big priority, I think it speaks to quite a lot of the power of this piece of uh, legislation as well. Again, like the last one, not particularly well followed, um, still politically sensitive, especially when you factor in the Scandinavian and some of the Baltic countries. They're the ones that really um, lobby against uh, too, shall we say, stringent rules under this um, Lulu CF. Um, but the fact that it does have so much influence over um, the net part of this goal, and I, I remember that being one of the 
the big controversies as well um, when that 55% was agreed on, that it was a net target and not um, an absolute target as a lot of uh, green groups wanted as well, um, that we were always going to get to this point where the LULU-CF regulation would have to be um, bolstered even more. Um, is there anything already that you think is going to be um, a problem or it's going to be a, sort of a problematic issue going forward for um, people? Like, is that 310 million too big a target? I mean, I remember there's quite a lot of things we've done on Foresight recently about how, you know, forestry management is, our carbon sinks are actually getting smaller um, in a lot of countries. They're not getting bigger. So where are these 310 million tons going to come from? You know, are we going to see, um, we're going to have to see regulations and directives strengthened in other places in order to make sure that LULUCF is achievable, do you think? Or, or, or where, do, where do we stand in that regard? It's extremely complex. And I think, once again, we um, we can see the connection with, with so many other of the EU's policy areas and, and, and uh, objectives, right? From the, I'm thinking from the EU's uh, soil strategy to mm-hmm. uh, the carbon removal certifications, um, communications on sustainable carbon cycles, farm to fork strategy as well, and even also anything that is related to renewable energies and, and biomass, because that's probably being always one of the hot potatoes when negotiating anything related to uh, to LULUCF. Um, indeed, the carbon sinks have been steadily declining for the past uh, past years. And a lot of this decrease uh, has often been attributed to, to the harvesting for biomass uh, production. What this legislation does um, right now, or what the compromise does, um, is that now emissions from biomass used in energy production will also be accounted for, which wasn't the case in the previous uh, LULUCF regulation. Um, and then in order to prevent any kind of backsliding on, on those objectives, uh, there's going to be a carbon budget between 2026 and 2029 and a trajectory that uh, EU member states will need to uh, to follow. But of course, once again, it also brings a lot of flexibility to member states on how to um, achieve those targets. Um, they will be able to purchase or to sell removal units uh, among themselves. Even they should be able to use surplus emissions from from the effort sharing regulation, for instance. So um, this has also been a very politically sensitive issue uh, to be um, to be negotiated. Um, so it still keeps a certain degree of uh, of flexibility and certain um, exceptions. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you, and maybe your colleagues as well, that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just €29. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. I mean, both this one and the effort sharing regulation do seem to be setting the tone for energy and climate policy in the EU for the next 10 years, shall we say, rather than you know, biomass from uh, electricity generation not being, inclu- being included in LULUCF for once. You know, that does send a signal to government saying, well, you know, you have to think about this now. You can't just all start producing your quote unquote renewable energy from biomass because it's now part of this. So it's all fitting together, um, bringing in the renewables directive as well. Um, it really is a case of, I think, 
um, that without all of these things being agreed, I mean, we'll get onto this when we talk about emissions trading system in a minute, but um, you can't get an agreement on other things unless some of these are already agreed. You do have this ecosystem of legislation going on. Um, and if they don't get the order right, again, we'll talk about this with ETS, they are struggling mm-hmm. there to get an agreement because other things are not agreed yet. Um, so I find that really interesting, actually. I think so. And this this reflects very well the complexity of um, of these negotiations and everything that is at stake, that you cannot uh, have two policies that contradict each other. There's a really big effort of yeah, coordination of, of harmonization um, and, and and coherence. I think coherence. I think is the is the key word uh, here. Um, mm-hmm. I think something that is very um, that is very interesting is that if we look at um, at reactions from um, uh, from policymakers, I think I see overall like some some very positive reactions. For instance, the Parliament rapporteur uh, Villaninisto was saying that. Uh, and I'm reading, we now have a more ambitious target and safeguards such as better data and stricter reporting requirements, more transparency, as well as a review by 2025. So this mm-hmm. is meant to tighten uh, the, the legislation and prevent that there are, again, any backslides or that we rely too much on, on the flexibility from member states. Uh, Basai Haut also highlighted that it is important not only that we have kept the commission's goal of uh, reducing, um, sorry, of, of increasing uh, our um, net carbon sink, but also that we have been able to reduce the exceptions that EU member states wanted. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is happy, though. Of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's always someone because, that doesn't um, like something. Um, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And the thing was, I was looking for um, as many reactions as uh, possible from uh, from different stakeholders. In, in a way, it was a bit difficult to find. I don't know because if it's because everyone is essentially, you know, completely immersed in the uh, COP27 discussions and side events and uh, and whatnot, but um, I stumbled upon the reaction of um, a joint reaction with uh, Climate Action Network Europe and FERN, the NGO working on uh, on forestry, and um, it's very interesting what they mentioned because they say essentially that the final regulation, um, you know, it came from a fairly positive European Commission proposal. The Parliament tried to. Um, to, to improve it and make it more ambition. But the reaction says that the final regulation has been butchered by EU no. member states. Um, they say their, their, main cons- the, uh, their main concerns involve the low ambition and the lack of uh, transparency. And uh, they say that the target of 310 million tons is yet again a paper target um, that in practice... Uh, yeah, there is no way to be able to um, really in, ensure that this uh, that, that this happens, and that of course uh, targets are great, but the implementation needs to be uh, robust, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, they say that the back, as a backdrop to these negotiations are the realities of forests in Finland and Sweden and Estonia, um, which are three of the EU's more for, most forested countries. And particularly, it states that Finland's lensing has been shown to have become a net source of greenhouse gas emissions due to record high uh, logging. 
Also in Sweden, the forest carbon sink has reduced by 5 million tons. And in Estonia, the forests are emitting more carbon that they absorb as well due to intensive uh, logging. So um, the deal is not short of, again, of flexibilities and uh, degree also of uh, challenges really in its, uh, in its implementation. So yeah, it's another uh, extremely complex one that's not really for people who aren't very good at maths, I would say, myself included. Um, another one that involves a lot of numbers is the ongoing talks on the emissions trading scheme as well, the ETS. Um, as we said earlier, uh, the ESR covers 60% of emissions. The other 40% is in the ETS, uh, industrial clusters, all these kind of things. Um, yeah, how are those? Because from what I hear, they are not going particularly well, these talks. There's a lot of contentious issues that you know the council aren't willing to compromise on. The parliament is trying its best to come up with a deal by the end of the year. Uh, people aren't particularly happy. Um, pretty much the mirror opposite of the other two that we've talked about, where it was a little bit more smooth sailing, uh, where this one is proving to be much more sensitive. Yes, indeed. I think um, we were already, all of us, bracing ourselves for some some very tough negotiations. And we've already been seeing this in previous reforms as well, that there's many contentious issues to the table. I mean, the the one on, on free EU allowance allocation and the, the role of energy intensive industries uh, in that has already been there in, in previous reforms, but now we're adding to it some other very um, sensitive and polarizing topics, for instance, the um, EU the inclusion of uh, or the creation of a second EU ETS. Um, I think most people started dubbing it as ETS2 uh, for road transport and, and buildings or for um, mm-hmm. fuel suppliers. Um, and this is essentially, um, yeah, there's so many issues at, at stake in this, uh, in this reform, um, that needs, that we need to be getting right because essentially this is a legislation that already governs some, um, 40% of our total emissions. Now, at least with maritime emissions, this is even going to be even, even larger and, um, mm-hmm. bringing also or, or creating a separate uh, mechanism for transport and buildings. It's going to re- require a lot of trial and error, I believe, which already we've been seeing with the previous ETS that essentially since 2005, we're seeing a lot of um, of trial and error, see what works, see what doesn't in order to achieve the price signal that, um, that we need. Another part of this that I really was interested in, the details of it, was this idea that MEPs were championing that they wanted 10% of the revenues from um, the ETS sector to go towards least developed countries. I mean, I think that's particularly relevant given that the ongoing summit in Egypt um, is Mm -hmm. focusing quite a lot on how to fund uh, renewable energy in the global south, how to pay for climate damages, so on and so forth. Um, but governments are really against that. So it almost seems like a, a really big missed opportunity. They're sending, you know, Franz Timmermans and all their head of states uh, to Egypt to make different promises and everything. Um, and this really seemed like something that they could really have gone mm-hmm. to COP with and then said, look, 
we're allocating quite a lot of money to help you. It helps all of us at the end of the day. Uh, but again, I think any kind of suggestion, we've seen it before, of ETS revenues being used for anything other than um, what national authorities say they should be uh, is a big no-no. You know, this idea before of using profits to um, fuel the repayment of the recovery and resilience facility that was shut down rather quickly as well. Um, and then other things, you know, this pushback on including waste to energy, the sector mm-hmm. in the ETS, um, it really does seem like um, it's national governments playing hardball with MEPs mm-hmm. and the commission as well in these talks, um, which I think from experience doesn't ever end particularly well. There's always a compromise at the end of the day that nobody is happy with. Um, so I guess we'll just have to see how this all goes mm-hmm. in that regard. I think so. I mean, if, if we look at the um, both at the at the global and the European context, I mean, I think it's very interesting. Uh, indeed, I think members of the European Parliament wanted to give this signal at COP twenty seven on look exactly look at this at this deal that we're going to be bringing. You know, a very sizable amount of uh, the revenues from the EU ETS to to least developed countries. Um, if we consider how prices of EU allowances have been in the previous uh, months, I mean, I've been, I think we've been seeing between uh, uh, throughout this year that at some point prices almost reached the 100 euro per ton uh, mark. Uh, now I think it's trading somewhere around the 70s. Uh, I used to be checking this on a daily, sometimes even <laughs> by the minute basis in my previous uh, in my previous job. So I'm a little bit embarrassed that I don't know exactly where the prices of EU allowances stay at the time of recording. But anyway, um, that's of course a big chunk of money that um, that EU member states get from get from it. That's a very sizable pot of money that. Uh, can be that what should be and must be according to legislation used to uh, achieve climate objectives and renewable energies and uh, and so on. I'm guessing also if we look back, you know, we were discussing earlier about the achievements of of the Czech presidency, and if we look at the Czech presidency, the EU ETS is perhaps a very sensitive issue also for the Czech Republic, given that mm-hmm. you know we are still talking about a fairly coal dependent country. Um, that will likely not phase out coal before 2030. I don't know where the discussions stand with the final coal phase out date, but it's one of the major uh, coal producing uh, EU member states. So uh, any tightening of the EU ETS will have a direct impact on on them. And we've been seeing uh, the carbon market being the target of, of many political political discussions. Poland at some point wanting to scrap it altogether uh, mm-hmm. in the height of the uh, energy price crisis, attributing the uh, increase in prices to the EU carbon market. So I always find it fascinating how uh, such a technical, such an incredibly technical file can have such strong political implications, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It, um, it's almost the opposite of the other two, which are also incredibly complex, but nobody really gives a damn about yet yeah, this one. Mm-hmm. Every other day during the pandemic and the recent year, 
there seems to have been a headline about how you know we need to suspend this emissions trading scheme. It's doing nothing but bankrupting people. Um, whereas you know you ask any EU official and they'll probably tell you, well, it's the the flagship Green Deal thing. It's the thing that's going to govern all of our emission reductions. Um, I mean, speaking about extremely complex things, I mean, there's this big link here with the, um, mm-hmm. the now famous carbon border adjustment mechanism, the CBAM, that again, everyone seems to know about, even if they don't know anything about uh, climate. Um, that's linked here. That also is probably waiting on um, some sort of final deal here to also be finally agreed. Is that right? Or, or can that mm-hmm. be, um, is that making a bit more progress? Indeed. I think we cannot, you know, uh, talk about one piece of legislation without the other. And I think trialogues are approaching it a similar way that really uh, trialogues on the ETS and trialogues on CBAM are taking place like back to back. Many of the rapporteurs or shadow rapporteurs of uh, one legislation are also the shadow rapporteurs on the other, which I think that's great because it ensures a, um, a big degree, I think, of cohesiveness once again between the two, um, between the two legislations. And I think really we cannot understand one without the other because they are meant to complement each other. This uh, EU ETS revision, I believe, that is the ETS of industry decarbonization, the revision of industry decarbonization. We have seen in the past few mm-hmm. years how you know the carbon market has successfully uh, driven the decarbonization of the power sector. I mean, w- of course, we have many factors playing out here and and the decrease in cost of renewables is uh, is a very big factor. But I think we cannot deny that um, the EU ETS has had a significant effort or has made, uh, contributed a significant effort into uh, making uh, coal-fired power plants not profitable anymore. This is going to be now, I think, the one where we really need to get industrial decarbonization right. And this is where uh, CBAM plays a role. And there are many issues involved with that, whether, um, I mean, I don't think it's a matter of whether, but of when we phase out free allocation of EU allowances. 2036 should be Mm -hmm. the final, final uh, date for that. Although, again, there seem to be some uh, exceptions playing out. And then the other uh, hot topic is whether we include the export rebates. So, um, of course, um, you know, all the materials produced and, and um, in the EU markets will have more stringent regulations and will need to pay the, the carbon price. So how do we make sure that these exports stay competitive uh, when they are being sold to third countries, you have two ways to do this. Either uh, you subsidize this, this carbon pricing to uh, the exports of EU products, or you ensure that the countries where these products are being sold also have similar uh, CBAMs or, or, or carbon prices uh, put in place. Um, that's one of the big uh, issues and big demands for several of the industries that are likely to be covered and of course, taking into account that many of these industries play an important role in the EU's economy, a lot of member states are are and and are pushing for uh, for more safeguards to to their respective industries. Of course, mm-hmm. 
Uh, one um, EU diplomat who shall rename, rename nameless, who I was talking to about this, said that it's like um, climate change in general. Before it was, do you believe in climate change? And now it's, do you understand climate change? Mm-hmm. And it's the same with free allowances and things like that. Do you believe in free allowances or do you understand them? And it's rapidly moving that way that before, I think even 18 months ago, there was still a glimmer of hope for less progressive industries that free allowances would be um, retained in some form forever. Um, but now I think they're rapidly mm-hmm. realizing that they can get exemptions and loopholes for a certain amount of time mm-hmm. and then it's going to be all over. Um, and I think for the next milestones we're looking at, if, correct me if I'm wrong, it's 22nd of November is the next trialogue and then some sort of jumbo trialogue, they're calling it, by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, after we've talked about all of this, you know, what chance do you think there's going to be a deal under the Czech presidency or do you think that we'll have to wait for the Swedes to wrap all this up? What do you think? Uh, tough one, tough one. Um, I'm, I'm confident that the Jumbo Trialogue will, uh, will bear, uh, results. Um, if, uh, the other day I stumbled uh, upon a, uh, a statement by, by the rapporteur for, uh, for the carbon border adjustment mechanism, Mohammed Shahim, where he stated that the parliament shares the ambition to conclude negotiations before the end of the year with the Czech presidency. And he says that no big delays should be expected, that the deal should come at the end of the of the year. But there's, of course, going to be certain um, issues when it comes to the uh, implementation or like small delays, especially because of the transition phase was meant to start in January 2023. But there's, of course, the many formalities that need to be put in place before this actually starts. Uh, so that is going to be tight. And that's something that our industries will uh, be looking into how do EU legis- legislators work uh, work around that. So that's that's an interesting one to uh, to be watching. But how about you, Sam? What do you think? Are we going to get a deal till the end of the year? Uh, will Sweden have some work to do? I o- I also think that some mixture of uh, people realizing that the sooner they do it, the better, and a certain amount of pride from the Czechs will mean that there'll be a deal before the end of the year. But just to play devil's advocate, I will say that uh, there'll be some sort of cop fallout and people will be too tired before the end of the year to really do this. And then it'll all be up to the Swedes to to wrap it all up in in January or February. So I'm right either way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I get the feeling that that Sweden is uh, somewhat already preparing preparing for that, that there can be some still outstanding issues to, to brush up that was the beginning of the year. So I guess we'll have to, we'll have to see. We definitely will. Yeah. It's never a dull moment, is it? When we're uh, uh, climate journalists on our beat, never a, a week off or anything like that, unfortunately. Definitely not. You never know when's going to be the next uh, big announcement or uh, breakthroughs in, uh, in negotiations. That always makes it a very uh, exciting uh exciting period i believe thank god that there is a bi-weekly podcast that everyone can listen to where they can have these issues explained to them though right and i think it's called the policy dispatch and uh, thank you for being uh, the guest I, should we call you a guest or just a you can be the honorary co-host for this episode i think anna you're, you uh, you're a, a step above guest so um thank you for um joining uh, me your co-host for this the seventh episode of the policy dispatch Thanks to you, Sam. I think it's been a great, a great discussion. Great to be able to to catch up and uh, share impressions on how the EU climate policy uh, debates uh, stand. What a better place to do it than here. Indeed, we could have a drink uh, at the bar uh, and discuss that. But 
it's also great to yeah to be sharing our our views with the audience as well indeed thanks anna thanks sam so uh, complex rules with a simple aim reduce emissions if the eu's maths is correct another two percent could be added to its emissions cut in ledger uh, but that complexity comes with inherent dangers like bad or even devious accounting practices, uh, as well as perhaps unpredictable knock-on effects on other sectors. Time will tell whether these particular policies are successful or not. Now, at the top of the show, I asked you, which European country ranks third on the forestry coverage charts behind Finland and Sweden? Now, if you said Estonia or even Austria, then I'm afraid you're wrong. 61% of Slovenia is covered by trees, uh, making it one of the literally greenest countries in Europe. Thank you once again for tuning into this. Uh, the Policy Dispatch, be sure to check foresight.dk for our latest climate and energy stories, plus details about how you can listen to the What Matters podcast, uh, as well as more details about the latest Foresight magazine, which has just been published and looks absolutely brilliant. So until next time, goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.